Bible meeting when I was about eight years old. It was obvious to me then and now that the Lord had initiated Philippians 1.6. He'd begun a good work in me, and I remember it vividly. I'm now almost 60. <laughs> the sad truth of the matter is that from that point on, I was caught in morality doctrine rather than engaged in discipleship. I learned to be a good boy. If you're a good boy, you got to ring the church bell at 11 o'clock. If you're a good boy, you got to do a lot of things. So I learned to be a good boy. But you can be a good boy, and you can have faith in Jesus. And you try to keep your feet on both those tracks. They are not parallel. And that's what I want to talk about. As I grew, I decided to accept every moral challenge as an opportunity to prove that God had made a great choice. And I would prove myself worthy of being on the team. All throughout my teenage and adolescent years, I never touched a drop of alcohol, never swore or used the Lord's name in vain, shunned all form of drugs, and self-righteously beat up those who did them. Sorry, Mark and Joe. <laughs> okay, I still don't know what beer tastes like. It's true. I abstained from dating because of my conviction that it was unbiblical. And by the way, if you took that stand in 1979, you were labeled as a homosexual and forced to continuously fistfight the endless stream of macho men who brought it up. Not to mention the fact that absolutely none of the girls I knew wanted to associate with a guy who held that belief. As my efforts to please God via morality increased, the justification that was offered through Jesus Christ began to fade quickly. As a result of my efforts, I was absolutely certain that God owed me. At the very least, all the amenities of the American dream good job, beautiful wife, three or more perfectly healthy kids whom I could then groom into budding Pharisees like myself. But God in his mercy chose to provide me with none of those things at that point in my life and instead dispensed the wages that arrogance and pride richly provide. Rage, envy, malice, and unending bitterness. I was going nowhere fast with that holier-than-thou routine. When I'd finally come to the end of myself, I actually set about to sacrifice every shred of my hard-fought morality and fly it right in God's face. It was my perception that God had not paid me what he owed, as if God were not sovereign and I could obligate him to pay up. But even here, God chose to expose his mercy and his sovereignty simultaneously. I went out one night and I bought some whiskey with the intention of getting stone drunk. But I dropped the bottle getting out of the truck and it broke. I decided to accept the invitation of some local potheads on one evening, but they got busted before I got to their house. I had a friend set me up with a well-known promiscuous girl at his college, but as we were walking to her dorm and talking, she actually stopped, looked at me and said, I'm sorry, you're a good-looking guy and everything, but I can't do this with you. There's just something about you. I, I don't know what it is, but I can't. I'm sorry. And I have written here, ah! <laughs> I can now look back and see God's mercy and sovereignty so clearly. But at the time, I was enraged and entertaining suicidal thoughts. I remember taking my father's 12-gauge shotgun out into the woods near our house under the auspice of turkey hunting. I carefully loaded the gun, fired it twice to make sure that everything was in working order, and sat down beneath my childhood thinking tree. I began to contemplate whether or not I could actually bring myself to end it all. It was a rapidly expanding exploration in my mind at that point, and I had not quite evolved to a full-blown commitment. I was still wrestling with all those thoughts when I placed the barrel in my mouth, prepared to push the trigger 
with a stick that I'd selected. I remember mentally screaming at God, if you don't stop me right now, I'm just going to do it. And no sooner had I completed that thought when I heard behind me a series of familiar grunts and snorts. I pulled the barrel from my mouth, spun around, caught sight of a porcupine less than 20 feet away. Most porcupines will actually go out of their way to avoid people and by nature must be cornered in order for them to go into their classic defensive posture. But this one was running right at me, head on. I began backpedaling about 10 or 15 steps, but it just kept coming. Now faced with this most bizarre situation, I chose the only rational course of action and shot the porcupine with my third and final round of ammunition. Ah! God spared me once again with a most unusual ram in the thicket. God had allowed me to face death at my own hands and come to the realization that he and he alone would decide the time and method of my passing from this earth. Though I must admit that realizing that did not make me appreciate it. By the way, suicide's never entered my mind since. And by the way, I've had a couple of people try to explain to me over the years. They came up with a, an explanation for the charge of the porcupine. Uh, somebody said, maybe it was blind and you scared it when you shot and it was just running. Or maybe there were babies in the tree behind you. Okay? <laughs> There's no explanation for it. And uh, I thank you for your sacrifice, my spiky friend. In the months that followed my suicidal exploration, my rage gave way to a mild depression. I would work 10 hours a day, six days a week at a local sheet metal factory, and come home to work all night building a hot rod truck. And okay, for the gearheads in the room, it was a 1969 Chevy with a 354 bolt main and a Ford 9-inch rear end. Okay? I had stopped attending church altogether. I usually slept most of Sunday away and purposely stayed as far away from people as I could get, even my family. This went on for about six months when I was approached by a friend of mine about refereeing and coaching high school wrestling. I did have a very good high school wrestling career. After some persistence on the part of that individual, I gave in and threw myself wholeheartedly at my newfound cause. As God would have it, I ended up coaching a young man named Sean. He quickly adopted my style and even perfected a few of my favorite moves. Sean kept inviting me to attend a Sunday night worship and witness service at his church. Eventually, I decided to attend the service that consisted of hymns interspersed with personal testimonies of how God had been working in people's lives. It was very loose, informal, and the gracious people I encountered were able to look beyond my black leather jacket and ponytail. They were bent on declaring the goodness of the Lord to me, and they left me with no excuse for not looking on the Lord and being saved. One Sunday, I arrived to find that they had replaced worship and witness with a missionary presentation. I was not only disappointed, I was irritated. I grew up Baptist. I knew what these were. I felt obligated to stay for Sean's sake, but I remember thinking some really petty thoughts. Like, how many slides of naked children and filthy streams am I going to have to sit here through before I can get out of here? I sat unmoved and distracted through the entire presentation until the very end. When the missionary began to proclaim the gospel, I remember thinking, wait a minute, where did that come from? I was supposed to be asking for money. It, it seemed completely out of place, and that's how hard my heart was. The missionary made an appeal to all present that they should submit their entire lives, every aspect they had, to the Lord Jesus Christ. At that point, I felt the Holy Spirit come upon me and open my heart as I never imagined it could be. I felt the full weight of Romans 3.23, which says, All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I was feeling it. At the same time, I was feeling the relief of the very next verse, 324. 
and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. I began to weep so hard that I literally could not see. I was physically pulled against my will to the altar rail in front of the church. Combat boots, black leather jacket, ponytail, and all, being supernaturally dragged in front of gasping parishioners. <laughs> Many of them knew me, and most knew me well enough that they were aware I'd much rather take a swing at them than walk down that aisle. This was not some rational decision that I was making in response to a carefully crafted appeal. I would have recognized that process since I'd practiced it most of my life. This experience felt very much outside of me and I had a complete sense of something else invading my mind and my thoughts. I was fully in the grip of God's grace and basking in unmerited love. I landed at my knees in front of the missionary and she knelt down and cradled my chin in her hand, gently pulled my head up so she could see my face. And I have her in parentheses, missionaries really are gutsy people, okay? She looked me square in the eye and asked, are you ready to give everything you are and have ever been over to the Lord Jesus Christ and let him have his way in you for the rest of your life. I gathered myself slightly, looked straight at her, sincerely as I could, I literally cried out, I don't know, but I want to. And that's what changed. I wanted to. The cross of Christ took center position that day and God granted me a love for his word that I never had before, even though I'd read it many times. He literally opened the eyes of my heart and allowed me to realize what I had often used to recite as a young boy. You are the potter and I am the clay, and the only thing I am fit to display is the workings of your hands upon me. Since that day, the Lord has continued his sanctifying work in me, and I could heap many testimonies of his goodness on top of this much abridged version of my journey to the cross. But I was reading one of Charles Spurgeon's sermons entitled Sovereignty and Salvation, I was blessed when I read the following because I could relate to my earlier efforts to produce my own righteousness. He says, how frequently you who are coming to Christ look to yourselves. Oh, you say, I do not repent enough. That's looking to yourself. I do not believe enough. That is looking to yourself. I am too unworthy. That is looking to yourself. I cannot discover, says another, that I have any righteousness. It is quite right for you to say that you don't have any righteousness quite wrong for you to look for it in the first place. And Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For by grace you have been saved by faith, and that not of yourself. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, that no one should boast. So even though these events were 30, 40 years ago, I want to talk to teenagers for a second. Maybe not. Maybe I'm talking to somebody else. But are you sitting here week after week thinking maybe, you know, you look good in the eyes of the church or you're making your parents look good in the eyes of the church because you're resisting temptations, hoping all of that will buy you some measure of worthiness towards salvation. I can tell you from personal experience that resisting temptation may make the devil flee, but it's not a saving guarantee. Or maybe you're on the other end of the spectrum. You've served notice loud and clear that you are the captain of your own destiny, that you are smarter than your parents or anyone else who's trying to guide you, and their restrictive God. And you're going to take a ride with the devil because it's just more fun. Well, let me tell you, don't let the devil ride because before too long, he'll want to drive. And some of you know what I mean. Are you deceiving yourselves by believing that I'm going to have time to sort all this stuff out anyway? Don't count on a porcupine showing up to save you. What's going on in your heart? God doesn't owe you your next breath, but you do owe him yours. Let me close in this way. 
I don't care if you're down and out or up and in. You got a great job, a total slob. If you're a prostitute or a princess, you got a PhD or a GED. God is no respecter of persons, and he's calling you for his purposes. Thank you, church.